Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the Word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So what in the world are we going to do with the Ten Commandments? They're sitting up there in the front of many southern Anglican churches. St. Paul Somerville, where I served for a number of years, has the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. You see them in a lot of places, a lot of places of prominence. Just one story about the Ten Commandments as we begin. We're in 1987. I'm just out of seminary. I'm serving my assistantship at Church of the Holy Comforter in Sumter, and because I was the assistant, I was given the youth ministry, right? It's like, it's like the, the Mikey commercial, for those of you who remember the Mikey commercial in Life Syria, like, we'll give it to Mikey, right? He'll, he'll, he'll eat anything. And I was given confirmation class as an assignment in addition to that, and so I had to teach confirmation class and prepare the young sort of junior high level kids for confirmation. So I went reading around, and I'm making a long story short, I couldn't find anything, not one thing that I felt was worth using as a resource. I was kind of horrified. I couldn't believe that there was this really major thing called confirmation. I couldn't find a book. So I wrote my own. And uh, one of the things that I sort of had to think about was, well, what, what's important for these kids to know uh, when they stand before the bishop and stand before the people of God? And as part of my requirements, I asked that they learn the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. And uh, probably eight weeks into this class, I had a, a father who is a member of the Air Force and a, a wonderful man, a very prominent member of the community, call me up, and he was very unhappy with the way his son had been performing in the class and the way the class was going. And my office was on the second floor, true story. And he came, and I'll never forget this day, because when he came through my office door, and I almost never got visits, I was hiding on the second floor. He was, he was red, and he was not this kind of person, he was red from the neck up. He was absolutely livid with me that I was requiring his son to know anything for confirmation class. And it didn't matter how hard he tried, I was not going to be uh, deterred from my, my absolute belief that there were some things that were a good idea uh, for people to know. And the, the argument climaxed, and I promise I'm not making this up, red in the face, yelling at me from about eight feet away, he finally said, look, I've been an Episcopalian all my life, and I've never had to learn the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and what was so sad about that story is he thought that clinched the argument. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And what, the re, part of the reason I want to use it is because we failed two generations right there. We failed his, his generation by not asking him to learn the Ten Commandments, and we were well on our way to failing his son's generation. And by the way, now we, we have his son's children and their children in our congregations, and we're three generations behind in the average Anglican church in terms of the level of our education. The point of the story is this. We give lip service to it. It's in a place of prominence. We talk about it but we don't actually learn it and take it seriously. And part of the value of a sermon like this and a series like this is it makes you stop the film and just pause and say, now, yeah, the Ten Commandments, they're important. Why? All right? So three answers. 
the greatness of God's call in the Ten Commandments, the greatness of the need that it creates, and the greatness of the solution that God provides. So the greatness of the call that God gives, the greatness of the need that it creates, and the greatness of the solution that God provides. First of all, the greatness of the call God gives. And if it's possible, I would like the Ten Commandments up on the screen if we can have them. If it's too much trouble, don't worry about it. What I want you to notice about this passage is what I want to call its completeness and its comprehensiveness. It actually doesn't start with the commandments. If you look at your text and you look at the screen, it starts with the being and action of God. Hey, people, this isn't about you. This is about me. I am the Lord your God. I am the great I am who called Moses out of the burning bush. I rescued you through the Exodus. I am calling you as a people to yourself. This is about God's being in action, and therefore he's bringing a people out of Egypt to be his people for the world, and it is about their being in action. So it involves all dimensions, vertical and horizontal, God and humanity. It involves all of our life, our worship and our work, our families, our marriages, our children, our sex lives, our play, our possessions, our words, our thoughts, our bodies, our minds, our wills, our hearts. It involves both the external and the internal. Did you catch what Paul said about the 10th commandment in Romans 7 that was just read to you? It's terribly important, this. It's not simply, brothers and sisters, about sins. It's about sin. That is to say, it's not simply about action. That's the great Southern problem, right? You know the caricature of the Southern uh, religious person, right? I don't sin, which translates into I haven't explicitly violated the Ten Commandments and usually translates to something like this. I don't uh, drink, smoke, or chew, or spend time with girls that do. (laughs) As, As if that's some kind of way to justify yourself in God's sight. But notice it's all externalized, it's all action. And of course, these are actions that we're talking about. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, etc. They are actions, but the 10th commandment, oh, now he's gone from preaching to meddling, thou shalt not covet. That's the one that slays Paul completely. It's about your internal attitude. It's about what you think about at three o'clock in the morning. It's about what I like to call, oh, key phrase, this, the sidelong glance. You do know that comparisonitis doesn't end at school, right? That when you're an adult, you still compare and dream about what it would be like to be this person or that person and to think about how much better your life would be if you were just them or her or him. And you covet, you want to be that person as if God has somehow made a mistake in making you you. And nobody can see that. It's internal. You're hiding it in your own thoughts. And when the liturgy says, Almighty God to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, it's giving us the God with whom we have to do, the God who wrote the Ten Commandments, the God who wants us to be holy in who we are as well as what we do. And I'm not done because... As Christians, we have another dimension that we have to add to the Ten Commandments, which is very vital and important for our purposes, and that is Jesus teaches about them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And when Jesus teaches about the Ten Commandments, what he basically says is, Moses was good, I'm going one better. That is to say, Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and says, they're absolutely true, but I want them to be richer and fuller and deeper and more interiorized. So when it says you shall not commit adultery, that's a good start. But 
To be a Christian who is living the Ten Commandments, as far as I'm concerned, means you are pro-marriage, you are pro-family. So if you are a single person, you have an obligation as a Christian to root for every married person in your life to succeed. You have an obligation to pray for them. We have a liturgy in marriage in the Anglican tradition. And part of that liturgy is, will all of you do all in your power to support these persons in their life together? And we actually make you say, we will. That's not just words. It's an obligation. Jesus takes every one of the Ten Commandments and says, yes, don't murder, but be about life. Be a person who is in favor of life in all of its dimensions, to want everything around you to flourish. And then we get to this, that Jesus is the real standard. You do know this, right? I can't stand it whenever a tragedy happens and they put somebody on the news and the person says, oh, you know, they're only human. That's exactly backwards. The problem is they're not human. You do know this, right? Jesus Christ is what a human being looks like, fully alive. You and I are apologies for being human. You do, you, you, you do know this, right? Based on the standard of Christ, you and I are apologies. The problem is not that they're not human. The problem is they're not human enough. Exactly. That's it. Jesus is a human being fully alive. And so what you have here is an awesome, full, comprehensive, complete standard, vertical and horizontal, outward and inward, being and action in every possible facet. And the Lord summarizes it this way in Leviticus 11. He says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. And that word holy, H-O-L-Y, means in English holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. That is to say holy mind, holy and completely dedicated to me in every facet of who you are, what you think, what you wear, who you talk to, how you talk, and on and on and on. It is an awesome standard. It is a great standard. I'm a fan of Archibald Rutledge. You may know his work. He writes a lot about the South. In one of his books, he tells the story of going on a hike one day and meeting a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. And he could see that the man was utterly heartbroken, so as he liked to do, he kind of chatted him up. And the man explained to Rutledge how it happened. Because this man worked out of doors most of the time, he took his dog with him to work. And that morning, he left the animal in a clearing and gave him a command to stay and watch his lunch bucket. And then he went into the forest. His faithful friend understood, and that's exactly what he did. But unfortunately, a fire started in the woods, and the blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left. But he didn't move. He stayed right where he was, in perfect obedience to his master's word. With tearful eyes, as Archibald Rutledge tells the story, the dog's owner looks at him and says, I always had to be careful when I told him what to do, because I knew he would do it. Now run yourself up against that and realize, brothers and sisters, that we aren't even as obedient as that dog. And we're talking about Almighty God. And that drives us to point number two. If that's the greatness of God's call, then, then, then it creates a great problem. This is God's unchanging standard. And it means, as the prayer book says, that we have offended against his holy majesty. We are guilty of treason. And treason is a very serious charge. I, you may know, 
am a scholar of hell. That's another story for another time. It's, it's a, I haven't been, but I can tell you it's not good. That's all I want to say about that right now. But, but, but one of the things about Dante's wonderful inferno is when you, go, when you go down in the circles of hell, the sins get worse. And the very, very, very bottom circle is Satan, who's actually encased in ice. But in the circle right above Satan is Brutus and Cassius and Judas, who betray and that's what treason is. is. It's, it's, it's against a country. It's against a person. It's against a person that you're close to. And ask yourself the question, what does it mean, if God means anything to you, that you're guilty of betraying him like Judas betrayed Christ? And then ask yourself the question, how big a problem is that? Now let me put this to you using New Testament language just so that we're all together. Because you, you need to realize this is a really, really big problem. Paul is at great pains in Romans to get his readers to understand how important this is. And when he climaxes his argument in Romans 3, he says this, he says, all have sinned, all have sinned. Last time I checked, that includes all of us, right? Anybody want to say they're an exception, you can talk to me after the service. And and then he says this, he says, now we know, listen, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now that imagery that Paul is using is indispensable for our purposes this morning in terms of conveying to us how big a problem we have. Paul is using the evocative image of a law court and God is the prosecutor and we are charged with being guilty of being sinners and the evidence is being marshaled. And what Paul is saying is the evidence against us for being charged with being guilty of sin and sins is so overwhelming, we have nothing to say in our own defense. Every mouth is stopped. Even Hollywood, as bad as they are, gets some of this. You look at a silly movie like Albert Brooks' Defending Your Life, and one of the funny parts of it is he actually has a, you know, there, there are two lawyers that have to fight over his life, and they show actual footage of what he did. It makes me think of the New Yorker cartoon. I have a friend who sends me New Yorker cartoons regularly, and it's, got, it's a guy standing before the judgment seat, and, the, the, and he's going like, he's just, just gesticulating as if he's making a really sincere argument. And the caption is, those weren't lies, that was spin. <laughs> as if somehow he could get out of it. The, the, the issue is, if we use the standard of my first point, then we're buried in our second point. And here's the problem. Most of us use the wrong standard. We're like the boy who has a one-inch ruler that thinks he's tall when he's six years old. By us, we're good people. Maybe by our neighbors, we're good people. But the question is, what does God think? I'm very fond of a story about New York about a man who made it big, rags to riches. His mom and his family was from Eastern Europe, and he'd all his life dreamed of doing this, but he finally made it to the big time. He bought a yacht, he got himself a, a uniform that was full of all this gold regalia and it said captain on it. And he was super excited. He had his mom, who is up there now by this time, come all the way over. And if any of you have ever been to New York Harbor, it's an awesome place. 
and he puts his mom on the yacht, first time she's ever been in the United States, ever been to New York, takes her out in the harbor, goes under, changes into his uniform. A few moments later, he comes out on the deck to parade before his mother, and he says, and see, this is the trouble with men, is they're always trying to figure out who they're going to be when they grow up. You do know that about us. Look, mom, he says, I'm a captain. And with the incredible native common sense that so many Eastern Europeans have, she looked at him calmly and then said this, Sammy, by you, you as a captain, and by me, you as a captain, but by captains, you as no captain. (laughs) And there isn't a person here who can't relate to what she's saying. Isaiah puts it this way, chapter 64, verse 6, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Did you get that? Even even the stuff that we do that's right is so tainted by our own self-interest that even that is as filthy rags in God's sight. And Paul says this about the law. The law is supposed to do something. It's supposed to drive us to Christ. It's a custodian. It's a school teacher. It's a tutor. You can translate the Greek word in Galatians 3. That standard that we can never meet is meant to point out to us just how unrighteous we are. Which leads me to my third point. You all with me? So first, the greatness of God's call. Second, the greatness of the problem that it creates. And then third, the greatness of the solution that it provides. This is basically Fitz Allison's whole life, for those of you who know our former bishop. He, he basically has spent his life worrying about this last point, which is that God has done all that is necessary for our life and our salvation. This is the point of doing a series like this. is it's, It gives us the opportunity not simply to go through the biblical story, but to get some of the deep resonances that we've heard in the past and bring them back. And this is the part in this morning's sermon where I recall for you Genesis 22, where Abraham says, and I quote, God will himself provide the ram. That's where we are. Here's Fitz Allison talking about being made right with God. In other words, Christians are justified by the righteousness of Christ, whereby they dwell in him and are thus acceptable to God. Listen. But it is not on account of any righteousness of their own. Paul says it very explicitly in Galatians, sorry, Philippians chapter 3. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now we need to pause on this point and really drive it home. Because here's the problem, brothers and sisters. We have churches full of people that aren't Christians. You do know this, right? right? You do know that to be a Christian is not somebody who's in a church, right? You don't become a car by being in a garage, right? But, But more than that... A Christian is not actually somebody who does Christian things. And if you ask people what the definition of a Christian is, you will usually get a form of that caricature I gave you before. You know, they're a moral person, they're a good person, they're doing the right thing so they can get into heaven. Maybe when they were kids, they heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den, and they figure if they were faithful like Daniel was, then God will reward them by bailing them out, right? So So if I work real hard and do the right thing, I get into heaven, right? That's the gospel. This is what people throughout the church actually believe. And this is not driving us to that. The problem is too great. The solution has to come from somewhere else. Two stories. One from my preaching hero, Charles Simeon in the 18th century. One from Texas. 
not so long ago. First, my preaching hero. I love this story because it's true and because it, it, it gets at the heart of it. We're talking about someone who's going to Cambridge to become an Anglican minister. <laughs> so presumably he knows something about what the gospel is. He wouldn't even be there. He's supposed to be training to be an Anglican uh, parish minister. And three days after he gets there, he gets a, a note from the dean saying that he's going to be required to receive Holy Communion. Now this is in the late 18th century. This requirement is no longer there, but it's interesting to me in retrospect just that, the, that there was ever a time in Oxford and Cambridge history when as, a, as an undergraduate you were actually required to go to communion. So he's stuck, he gets, and he gets upset, and he writes in his diary as follows. It was but the third day after my arrival that I understood that I was expected in the space of three weeks to attend the Lord's Supper. What, said I, must I attend? On being informed that I must, the thought rushed to my mind that Satan was as fit to attend as I was. And that if I must attend, I must prepare, right? You see what he's doing? Clearly he has to be like Daniel. He has to be holy and righteous and good and, and do what's necessary, all that is necessary for his life and salvation. He has to fulfill the Ten Commandments based on his own strength. He doesn't know how to do that, so he gets the best book he can find, which is called The Whole Duty of Man, which does nothing but reinforce every one of his worst possible instincts. George Whitfield so hated the book The Whole Duty of Man that he had one of his Georgian orphans throw it in the fire and William Cooper once described it, and I quote, as a repository of self-righteousness and pharisaical lumber. <laughs> the entire book did nothing but, this, these are Christian books, the entire book did nothing but tell him, basically, try harder. And he says later in his own diary that he tried so hard, I find myself to be quite ill with fasting and reading and prayer. He got himself sick. He was driving himself nuts. Out of frustration, since that book didn't work, he found another book called Instructions for the Lord's Supper, which was by Thomas Wilson, and he read that one. And he had so much guilt, and he couldn't reconcile, he says, his sense of guilt with Christ's sacrifice as pr pr proposed and portrayed in the 1662 prayer book. Weighed down with his unworthiness and deep spiritual unrest, this comes in Passion Week, which is one of the details of the story I love. So this is Holy Week when this happens. He comes across, you ready for this? This one sentence in Wilson's book. This literally changed all of Christian history, this sentence. The Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of the offering. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the scapegoat. You go, you go back this afternoon and you go look it up and read about it. The scapegoat was a was a goat once a year who was prayed over by the priest and all the sins of the people were confessed on the goat and then it was sent out into the wilderness. Here's Simeon in his own diary. The thought came to my mind, what, may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I might lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my own, one soul, one moment longer. And I sought to lay my sins on the sacred head of Jesus. And on Wednesday, I began to have a hope of mercy. And on Thursday, my hope increased. And on Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on Sunday, Easter day, April 4th, I awoke with the words, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And from that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And one of the greatest Anglican ministries who's ever lived was put into orbit, literally. Two historians said he had the influence of more than one pope. 
He was the vicar of Holy Trinity Cambridge for 54 years. Incredible story for another time. But the point is, he was, he was in his late teens, just about 20. He'd been raised in a Christian household. He was training to be a Christian minister. He didn't have a clue what Christianity was. And he had to figure it out. And he almost got the wrong answer. One other story. This is a Donald Gray Barnhouse story. He calls it the Texas oil man. And I like it because it has the image of a payment so eloquently uh, given to us. He says this, he says, this is an imaginary story. He says, suppose the Great Depression brings many men to the point of bankruptcy. They wish to keep themselves above the flood and bring themselves out by their own efforts. Their natural pride wishes them to keep away from confessing their failure and acknowledging the desperation of their own circumstances. But, but for the purposes of this illustration, imagine that there's a small town in Texas that is dominated by one man fortunate enough to have discovered oil on his property, and he's bought all the leases for the oil in his neighborhood, so his fortune runs into the millions of dollars. And hearing about the destitute situation for the rest of the members of his town, he writes all the businessmen in the town, and he says he will take them out of bankruptcy if they write a letter acknowledging the certainty of their failure. He will then pay their debts and supply them with new capital to start their businesses afresh. Barnhouse says this, if there are men in the town who are proud enough to the point of insanity, they may refuse to bow before this offer from a kind benefactor. In that case, they will remain insolvent and will be forced to pay the penalty of their pride. And let's not go past this, brothers and sisters. There's an implicit doctrine of hell in Genesis. When it says, if you do this, you will surely die, that's three kinds of death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. And death is a reality, but eternal death is also reality. And if you refuse God's offer of mercy, you're stuck in the terrible position of having to pay for your own sins, which is eternally disastrous. But, he says, there are others who recognize that the man who makes the offer is a man who's known to them for years. He recognizes his success is a matter that involves certain obligations and responsibilities, and then he holds values and trust. He wishes to help them because of the generosity of his own nature. They, therefore, write him and set before him the true nature of their plight and avail themselves, here's the key phrase, of the offer made to them in free grace. Immediately, the local bank is instructed to take care of their needs, to pay off their debts, and to grant them the credit they need for the maintenance of their affairs. Someone might say to them this, because this friend has come to your aid, and in spite of the fact that you are absolutely bankrupt, what a phrase, in spite of the fact that you're absolutely bankrupt, your situation now is one of brilliant hope because of the grace that pays your debt and provides the capital which you need. We are brought day by day, Barnhouse says, to acknowledge freely before God our utter bankruptcy. We can do nothing for ourselves. If we are to have any blessing, it must come to us moment by moment from the flowing stream of grace which begins at Calvary and comes to us because of the love of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, exactly. You all with me? A great standard called for, a great problem created, and a great solution offered. Now two questions, then I'm done. So many places I could go with this. 
I want to go two places. The first is this. I want to go back to this point about Christians not knowing what the gospel is. And I want to press this. You do know this, right? You're in a culture that doesn't have a clue about the gospel, but you're also in a culture where most of the Christians don't know what the gospel is. In a recent poll, 88% of Catholics and the majority of Presbyterians and Methodists who, who called themselves evangelists believed, and I quote, if people are generally good or do enough good things for others in their lives, they will earn a place in heaven. In a poll of 7,000 Protestant youth from many denominations, they were asked if they agreed with statements. Here you go, listen to these. The way to be accepted by God is to try to sincerely live a good life. 60% said, mm-hmm. God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. Almost made it to 70% on that. The main emphasis of the gospel is on God's rules for right living. More than 50% said yes. Houston, we have a problem. You have a story to share in a culture that is confused. And in, in a time of confusion, you have a story to share. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you're in a culture which is full of Sisyphuses. You know this, right? You remember who Sisyphus was? He was condemned, condemned by Zeus to do a terrible, terrible, devastating punishment for the rest of his life. Every day he had to roll a huge rock up a, not really a hill, kind of a small mountain, and then every night it rolled back down. And you're in a culture where people are looking for love in all the wrong places. Everybody's trying to find a way to be righteous. The only question is, what rock are they wasting all their time on? But here's the thing. People in this culture don't even meet their own standards. And if you get an honest person, they might actually agree with that, if you can get them in a private moment. And you can say, you, you can actually go to them and say, you know what? Life isn't about rolling up a rock. You're never going to do enough to make your mom happy. You're never going to do enough to make your boss happy. You're never going to do enough to make your spouse happy. You're never going to be good enough, find fulfillment enough, be rich enough. It's never going to happen. The rock is already going to roll back down. And life is not a game to be played that way. It's all about grace, and it's all about love, and it's all about something that's been done for you and something you don't have to do yourself. If you can articulate that Jesus rescued you and that life is about grace, you can break through in a culture full of Sisyphuses. And part of being in a church that really starts living out the gospel is you start gossiping the gospel to other people. The sign of a really healthy church is a church that gossips the gospel. Not evangelistically in the sense of we hire Billy Graham and have crusades, but, but a church where they're so on fire with the sense that they've been loved by God and saved by the grace of Christ, but they, that they can't not talk about it. In other words, it's like Clemson fans. See, this I can use in South Carolina. But, but the point is, have you ever been near a Clemson fan? I mean, seriously. I mean, a, a Gamecock fan, a Clemson fan, but we'll just use Clemson fan. I told you about Sumter. In, in Sumter, this is a true story, we had one family. They were insane Clemson, I mean nutty Clemson fans, and this is true as God is my witness their, their house was orange okay their rug was orange and I promise, when I went to the bathroom this is true story, the toilet seat cover was orange and all they wanted to do was talk about Clemson well that's what a fan is 
It's someone who's enthusiastic and passionate about something that they want to believe in. And it's fine to talk about Clemson, and then you talk about Jesus, and people are like, oh my gosh! So you can be enthusiastic about a football team, but not about Jesus, who's the most important thing in the world? Something about this is all out of whack. You don't have to tell a Clemson fan to talk about Clemson. They do it naturally. That family was over the moon about Clemson. How many families have a toilet seat cover that is orange? It's ridiculous. But you've got to give them credit for being dedicated. How can it be that they were more dedicated to Clemson than most churches are to talking about the importance of the grace of Christ? I said at the early service, and I want to say it to you, that there's something really important that we're missing in the time of COVID and communion, and that is, in the Anglican tradition, you're supposed to get up out of your pew and go receive communion. And because we're in COVID, you're receiving in your seats. But I do want to recall for you what we usually do in a normal time, if we ever get back to a normal time. But this is important, because you need to think about this. There's something actually physically important that we're saying as Anglicans when we go up to the altar rail and we kneel and we hold out our hands. And And it's this. It's not just about Eucharist. It is about Eucharist. But it's not just about Eucharist. That Eucharistic posture is the posture of your life. That's the, do, 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 when you come up for Eucharist, do you bring your resume? Do you tell us about your genes and how great your family was? How much you've done at work? That's not the basis on which we give you communion. It's free. It's grace. It's mercy. It's done for you by Christ. That's the posture of the Christian. And you're in a culture where everybody's working like Sisyphus to get right with God and to get right with a standard that's not the right standard. And you're, you need to tell them that there's mercy because the standard's higher than they think and the mercy's bigger than they think. You all with me? The second thing is I just want to say a word about hope. The, uh, I debated how much I want to say about this, but I, I do want to say this to you. We are in a culture which is losing hope. Hope is a very, very important thing. And if you don't hope, you despair. And if you don't hope at all, you die. In fact, on cancer wards, and you you will learn this if you ever visit an oncology ward, they have a phrase that they use called the dream. And what you learn is if people don't have anything to live for, they no longer live. And what you learn on oncology wards is people have dreams. They have, they have something left that they want to do, whether it's to see their grandson one more time or to fix their affairs in Vermont and get their affairs in order, whatever it is. And there, there's a wonderful Langston Hughes poem that reads this way. He said, hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is like a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. And if you lose your dream on an oncology ward, that's one of the signs to the nurses and the doctors that it's curtains and it's over. And you watch people live that way. And you're in a culture where the dream is dying for so many people. Do you know this about America? This is true before COVID. Now it's even worse. Almost every institution in our American common life is not working. Do you know that? The education, the government, the Supreme Court, the Federal Reserve, Mainstream journalism, whatever that is anymore. Corporations, and now, thanks to this mess, public health. And maybe even the military. That's a lot of institutions. They're all not working. By the way, if we had enough time, I'd take you through and I'd show you that the baby boomers are responsible for every bloody one of them. I'm, ser- I'm serious. You, you, can, you can blame. I'm actually in that generation. You can blame because they're the ones that are leading all those institutions. And boy, have they made a mess of it. 
But the point is, when you're, in an, when you're in a culture where all the major institutions are failing like that, and they are, don't, don't let the denial of various uh, parties fool you. They're not working. People get discouraged. People get full of despair. And this is a story about hope. This is a, what that Texas oil man story says is so important. He said, you've been bankrupt, but because of what this man's done for you and his generosity, you have hope not simply for today, but for the future. So God says in Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So what does God do after the Exodus and after the Ten Commandments? He just leaves them there? No, no. He guides them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night because God's out there in the future. And I don't know what the future will bring, but I do know that God has us in his hands and God has the future in his hands. And part of what it means to live as a Christian is to live in hope. And Christian hope, listen, is confidence grounded in the character of God. And you're in a culture which has hope grounded in all these different things that aren't working. And as a Christian, you can look at the Ten Commandments and you can say, not simply Jesus has done the sacrifice that is necessary, but I am in Christ. And Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So it's not simply that I have a new life, it's that I have a new life today and a new future from here forward, and therefore I have hope, and I can live that way. Do you gossip the gospel, and do you have hope? The greatness of God's call, the greatness of the problem it creates, the greatness of the solution that God offers. As we are seated, let us pray. Lord, thank you for the Ten Commandments. It's hard to scale the size of the mountain that they represent, but it's your mountain, so we dare this morning. And we, we hear afresh your call to be holy as you are holy. And we just acknowledge, Lord, we fall so far short. So far short that every one of our mouths is stopped and we're all guilty before your standard, before your throne, before your law court. But we thank you this morning for the mercy of Jesus Christ who did all that is necessary and himself took the penalty of the law that we deserve so that we might have new life, not simply for today, but for all eternity. And it's in his precious name that we pray, the lamb that was sacrificed, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.